Flashpoint, where we talk about tomorrow's headlines today. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. Today, we're joined by Mark Fitzpatrick of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Mark is Executive Director of IISS Americas and also heads their Nonproliferation and Nuclear Policy Program. Prior to joining IISS, he served as U.S. Foreign Service Officer for 25 years with postings around the world, gaining a specialization in nonproliferation. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Happy to be here. So today we're going to talk about a series of hotspots all around the world, Iran, North Korea, Russia. But I kind of want to start with a, a broad question about nuclear deterrence, nonproliferation. Are strategies that places like IISS pioneered you know, back in the late 50s, 1960s, is it still relevant in today's complicated multipolar world, or, or are we in a totally different game now than, than then? That's a good question, and uh, and oftentimes we we ask ourselves that, and uh, and we do think that the uh, imperatives that drove IISS to be created in the late 1950s are still very relevant. It was a time of the uh, height of the Cold War when we weren't sure the world wasn't sure whether it would survive this uh, nuclear Damocles sword that was hanging over. We started a journal called Survival, called that because uh, right. weren't sure that we right. you know, how to survive <laughs> the the nuclear. Uh, uh, threat. And that nuclear threat uh, has receded and waned at some times, but it seems to have uh, uh, been getting larger in the last few years in, in from various sources. Yeah. Uh, let's let's shift to one of those sources that, that is in the headlines now and we expect will be uh, again in the future, Iran. Um, so I just read uh, that President Trump is going to chair a UN Security Council meeting on Iran this month. Uh, he pulled the U.S. out of, of course, out of the, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Agreement, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, that was in May. And they've started to reinstate sanctions. Uh, so now we're four months in after they pulling out of that. Uh, how have our partners responded? How has Iran responded? What, what are you seeing? So, Andrew, you've started, <laughs> you've started with the most controversial right. <laughs> subject among all the nuclear uh, issues. Um, and in a way, it's, it's, the issue of Iran is not a nuclear issue uh, today because the nuclear issue was boxed up uh, by that Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, mm -hmm. which, uh, despite um, the Trump administration's withdrawal, still uh, remains uh, valid. All the other parties are adhering to it, Iran particularly. Including Iran. Including. I mean, most okay. importantly, Iran. Right. They, they are adhering to their limits, and you wonder why, given that they're not receiving the uh, sanctions lifting benefits that mm -hmm. were... Um, uh, the most important quid pro quo of the deal. And, you know, there are various reasons. I think we're going to see um, Iran, after the midterm elections, uh, probably start to, to uh, incrementally um, adjust its uh, behavior in accordance with those limits and exceed them in some ways. Do you think they're that strategic, that they, they, they look at U.S. political calendars and, and start to think about? Well, I think everybody in the world is looking at the U.S. political <laughs> calendar. I mean, I travel around the world quite a bit, and it's the biggest question. How are the midterms going to go? Um, no, look, I mean, the, the question that Iran has to face is, um, uh, is it worth them maintaining their adherence to the JCPOA and keeping it alive? Uh, can they... Uh, uh, continue to get some benefits from the deal. I think the answer is yes, they can. Although mm -hmm. they're they're being squeezed by all the part, all the uh, European firms and other companies that are pulling out just on, on a 
prudent business um, calculations that it's not worth risking their access to the U.S. market, huge, much bigger than, than Iran's. But, you know, Iran has to make a, a tactical and a strategic calculation. If it stays in the deal, um, and how will the United States at some point come back to the deal? And I think, right. you know, they would have to assume that it, uh, if uh, Donald Trump is replaced in two and a half years by a Democrat, that that, that Democratic president uh, would, would reverse course again and, uh, and, and, and then re-implement the deal. And it's much better from Iran's perspective to re-implement a deal that's already been negotiated right. than to have to start over and renew and from scratch. Yeah. So, so this gets into kind of a question about U.S. politics, of course. It's, it's you know... Should uh, should Iran should others, uh, I mean, trust that the U.S. will be able to keep its word through changing administrations and, and political? Wins? Yeah, that's that's um, the, the the biggest charge that um, was levied against Trump for um, pulling out of a deal that Iran had been honoring, yeah. and he pulled out of it for other reasons. That's why I said this wasn't a nuclear issue so right, much as right. Iran's behavior, you know, malign behavior, so called uh, in. In, in Syria, Yemen, and uh, Iraq, and, uh, and Lebanon. And um, but yeah, could why would any country um, uh, reach a deal with the United States that they couldn't be sure uh, would be adhered to that the next president wouldn't just uh, rip up? It speaks to why it would be very good to have uh, Senate-confirmed uh, treaties rather than uh, politically <laughs> yeah, agreed there, agreements. There's, but, there's you know, something to that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the Senate hardly ever ratifies anything yeah. these days, so that's a tough hurdle. Um, moving from a country that that doesn't yet have nuclear weapons to to one that does, uh, North Korea, um, and again we so we saw the big photo op in Singapore last June between Trump and Kim. Uh, Trump says there was a contract that came out of that, uh, but it was kind of a one page, you know, agreement to move forward. Has there been any movement since then, or is this? It, 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 was it a lot of bluster? Uh, what well, was, is the, <laughs> you know, it was what's a lot of bluster. It was a lot of bluster. <laughs> and, and, I mean, there was an agreement. There was a uh, the, the shortest agreement you know could possibly be uh, fit on one page. Um, you know, in contrast to the um, Iran uh, JCPOA, which ran for uh, well over a hundred pages, right. uh, there was very little detail at all. And these were you know vague uh, you know promises. And uh, North Korea didn't really promise anything that they hadn't said in the past and then never carried out this, you know, and there's questions about what does North Korea mean when it says denuclearization. Probably what it means is that they would get rid of their nuclear weapons when the United States gets rid of its or when it stops, um, oh. uh, when it's, or, or, or maybe more narrowly, when it stops um, uh, uh, holding a nuclear, so-called nuclear umbrella over South Korea, when it stops right. uh, the nuclear deterrence, extended nuclear deterrence. Right. Uh, you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, but so you asked, has anything happened actually to yeah. to, to, so move this, to move this move forward? And what's happened? And, you know, North Koreans would say, yeah, <laughs> they collapsed the tunnels at the Punggye-ri uh, nuclear test site. They started to dismantle some of the facilities at the Sohe uh, missile uh, engine test site, and uh, and they've stopped testing. They haven't tested a missile since uh, last November. They right. haven't tested a nuclear device since last August. Uh, th that's a unilateral moratorium. They could resume any day. But I think one should recognize that North Korea has done some things. The problem is right. that when they collapsed the tunnels, when they dismantled some of the facilities at Sohei, they did so without any external verification. Okay. So the extent to which the tunnels are collapsed, the extent of irreversibility, 
all of that is in question. North Korea didn't get the benefit uh, that they should have gotten by taking the steps because they did it in their own way without inviting any international inspectors. So, but they, it, I remember there was some press that came and they kind of watched the things. Well, some up, press but, came but and watched the the watched the, the, the smoke from the, the right. collapsing tunnels. But those you know, press aren't experts. They yeah. should have had somebody from the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization. Interesting. Um, it, it sounds like most of these the things that they they've done are actually things that you uh, use to develop a nuclear program. So testing uh, engines and testing weapons. Uh, but we know that, of course, they do have a, a number of, of weapons already, and they are deliverable. Um, can you give me kind of what are the technical specifics that we know of, of the nuclear program? You know, how many weapons? Yeah. What's the range, we think? What can they do? Um there's a lot of uncertainty about how many weapons they have. Uh, the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency of the United States, assessed that they uh, could have up to 60. That's based on an 60. assessment of wow. how much plutonium uh, North Korea produced. And we have a pretty good idea of the plutonium production because you can see when the reactor uh, at, okay. um, uh, at Yongbyon was operating based on the you know, the, the weather, the snow melt on the roof and so forth. Right. You, can, you can get an as, uh, assessment. And then some um, guesses about uranium enrichment, uh, which we know very little about. We know they have a capability to do it because they displayed it in 2010. Right. And you can guess, well, if they displayed it in 2010, it's been operating ever since. And they mm -hmm. must have had another one because they you can't just build one from scratch. You have to have a, um, a, a, a prototype. Hmm. And then an assessment of combining the plutonium and the highly enriched uranium uh, into a, a more efficient uh, bomb, uh, you can you can build a lot more of them by, by combining them in this way, and they're right. more powerful right. uh, to boot. And most analysts assess that North Korea is pretty capable at this kind of thing. They've been working on um, on nuclear weapons, gosh, ever since I was North Korea desk. Decades, right? Decades. I yeah. was North Korea desk officer at the State Department uh, in the in the late 1980s, wow. and uh, and North Korea then was known to be uh, conducting explosives testing near near Yongbyon, which was uh, presumed to be uh, the beginning of experiments about how you how you you know build an, uh, a warhead. So yeah, and and they've been proven very efficient, very effective in in building you know <laughs> intercontinental ballistic missiles. Right. Uh, and um, the latest uh, nuclear uh, device that was tested had a huge um, uh, you know, uh, strength. I mean, it, it, it was kilotons of uh, 250, no, up, up to uh, over 200 megatons, maybe. It was wow. really big. Yeah, I'm sorry, kilot kilotons. Kilotons, yeah. Yeah. But, but still quite big. I mean, I mean, what is that? That's 10 times Hiroshima or something like that? Yeah, uh, at least 10 times Hiroshima. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's a significant uh, device. Uh, and what about delivery systems? You talked about inter intercontinental ballistic missiles. They've been, you know, developing those probably for as long as well. I mean, they so the ICBM development, of course, is is at the um, latter end of a of a stage of development of missiles that's been going on for a long, long time, uh, aided uh, quite a bit um, from uh, hardware and software uh, from the former Soviet Union. At my institute, we believe that. Um, North Korea probably got a lot of missiles intact uh, from uh, Russia. Okay. Um, and that they didn't just uh, reverse engineer, uh, but that they got a lot of missile engines uh, in particular from the Russians. Whatever is the case, they have 
now demonstrated an ability to hit the United States anywhere in the continental United States with an ICBM. Now, what they haven't demonstrated is that um, their missiles can successfully re-enter the Earth with a warhead intact. Right. You know, the re-entry. And that, that's one reason um, some who uh, don't want to say that North Korea has a nuclear weapon will point to that. But, um, uh, you know, China was able to demonstrate a re-entry vehicle very early in its testing stage. And okay. North Korea probably could as well. Right. They just don't have the diagnostic equipment to get ships out in the ocean to be able to um, observe uh, the, the you know, missile co coming back. Right. So the re-entry uh, vehicle is one outstanding question. And then there's another question of can North Korea miniaturize a warhead um, sufficient to fit on its missiles? And here I think their engineering skill leads one to have to say they probably can. Right, right. So, so basically, do you think the U.S. acts as if the, that they can hit us, that, that there is the deterrence capability that they can hit us, and, and so we, uh, our, our behavior has changed? Well, I mean, the, so the United States has to act as though North Korea can. I mean, right. you know, uh, uh, prudent uh, intelligence analysts and policymakers have to uh, take the worst-case assessment and act accordingly, the worst case being that, yes, North right. Korea could put a nuclear weapon on a, uh, on a missile and hitting where the United States, and even though the accuracy uh, isn't so good, doesn't matter with nuclear weapons, right. what the accuracy, you know, you're going to kill a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in this case, you know, sometimes worst-case yeah. analyses are, are very small uh, percentage probabilities. In this case, it's not, just, it's not so small. It's, it's pretty likely that they can do this. Right, and, right. And so, yes, uh, but you use the word deterrence, and, it, and if I may just say Please, that. yeah. Um, so North Korea's purpose in building these is to deter the United States right. uh, from getting involved in any conflict uh, if North Korea were to uh, decide to, again, launch a war to unite the, the peninsula right. militarily. Um, if they have weapons that can hit the United States, they think, well, then the United States wouldn't be involved. Uh, that's their concept of deterrence. Now, is the United States deterred? I don't think so. Right. Uh, it's a big question. I mean, it's it's all a matter of almost of philosophy and mm -hmm. and uh, and predictions, assessments, and uh, perceptions. Uh, but you know, the United States was never deterred from maintaining a very firm, de extended deterrence posture vis-a-vis -vis its European allies throughout the Cold War. Right. Even though the Soviet Union had hundreds of ICBMs that could hit the United States, North Korea has a handful mm -hmm. at best, and the United States has some missile defense capabilities, not very good, but you know, some possibility that we should, should, could shoot down North Korean missiles. So I don't think in these circumstances the United States is deterred by North Korea's ICBMs. Right, I understand. Okay, so we're not, we're not deterred. We're, it, it doesn't change our behavior in that respect. But um, yeah, In other respects, yeah, it, it may. I mean, yeah. in other respects, uh, uh, you know, President Trump at the beginning of the year said North Korea won't have an ICBM. He said it the day after uh, Kim Jong-un said that they would, and, you know, Trump tweeted, uh, it won't happen. Well, right. then it happened. I mean, right, then they right, tested right, right. it. So, uh, he, you know, his, his red line was crossed yeah. uh, w within months. So what are you going to do? Um, but then there was this, you know, talk of, uh, of uh, so that was last year that, um, you know, he had said the, yeah. the, the, the red line. Then, um, then he uh, hinted that the United States could uh, conduct a bloody nose uh, a limited strike to take out some of North Korea's uh, uh, facilities left right. of launch, you know, before right. they actually launched right. them. And 
gosh, this is a really risky strategy because right. North Korea's response to that is probably to, to launch war. Yeah, yeah. Um, quickly moving on from hotspot to hotspot, uh, I, I want to quickly hit on um, Russia. Uh, obviously, the the biggest other uh, holder of nuclear weapons in the world. Uh, Putin, before his election this year, announced a, a slate of big new weapon systems. So a cruise missile, nuclear torpedo, upgraded intercontinental ballistic missile. Um, what do you think? Is this is this a real threat? Is this, is this a new arms race? Or was this just for his own domestic consumption? Yeah, go, maybe know? all of the above. I right. Mean, I mean, some of these systems that he touted, uh, a nuclear arm, a nuclear powered cruise missile. Right. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so dangerous. It's the most dangerous thing you can think of. I mean, so anywhere you know that this this cruise missile would be flying over, it could fall down, and then you'd have a, a nuclear environmental disaster. I, it's something that scientists, engineers have thought about uh, theoretically, uh, you know, discussed uh, right. for decades, right. and uh, and so I put it in the category of a of a bombast that you know, right. Russia is not going to uh, develop a nuclear actually deploy uh, deploy a cruise yeah. missile, but. But these various other capabilities of uh, uh, supersonic uh, glide uh, vehicles and, and some of the um, uh, sub, uh, submarine um, nuclear-armed uh, torpedoes, um, these are within the realm of the possible. And, mm -hmm. yeah, it is, it is a sort of an arms race. I mean, the United States is not developing the same capabilities, but the United States is modernizing its nuclear forces. And it's the modernization of the nuclear forces that I think you have to say is an arms race. Okay. Because the United States is doing it, Russians are doing it, China is doing it, uh, North Korea is obviously doing it. Right. Um, some, you could even say maybe that the French are doing it, although to a lesser degree. Is, it, is that necessary, the modernization of, is, are we doing it, now I hear we, we're doing it because we, you know, People aren't sure that you know these old Cold War era weapons will work. Do we have to just modernize it for that oh, reason? It, no, that's that's not the reason, it? and that's that's not. I mean, that's false. It, they're certainly going to work. Okay. I mean, certainly. I mean, within enough of nine, them are ninety nine point eight percent probability okay. that they're going to work. I mean, these things were tested a thousand times. Right. In North Korea tested its six times, and we're scared to death right, that right, uh, right. theirs would work. Um, you know, for deterrence purposes, it doesn't have to be 100% uh, right. uh, you know, reliable. Um, no, the United States is modernizing for, for various reasons. One is to have a, a range of options, to have nuclear um, response capabilities at different um, uh, levels of the escalation ladder, and right. smaller to bigger. Right. And, um, and modernizing partly for safety you know, purposes. Um, these things would work, but to make sure they're as safe as possible, you know, sometimes you, you need to modernize them. There are probably some so, some reasonable um, logical grounds for modernizing, but I, I think most of the uh, experts in in the, the, in the private uh, sector, the so-called Jasons, you know, the yeah, um, yeah the, the scientists, the scientists yeah. who have access to highly classified information. I think many of them would say you don't really need to modernize in order to maintain your deterrence. Okay. So so we're modernizing because we want to spend a lot of money. I mean, oh, I mean we we're, we're modernizing because we want to, you know, maintain the strongest uh, right. arsenal and uh, you know, that's that's it's no US uh, statesman would want to uh, say that we're ready to be number 2 in the nuclear arms race. Okay. Okay. I interesting. Um uh, one uh, so so moving on, I, I want to talk 
quickly about China a little bit too. Yeah. You were you were recently over in yeah. Beijing, yeah. right? And yeah. and this was about their nuclear energy, uh, right? In civil nuclear civil energy nuclear industry. and how that yeah. that interacts. You know, mm-hmm. so they they haven't really started much of an export program for their civil nuclear. Not yet. yet. They do, um, but everybody thinks it's coming. They right? want to do it. Um, they they have one uh, client in Pakistan, okay. a longstanding right, uh, right. client. And they'd like to have others, so they're they're beginning uh, to be a new uh, player in the international nuclear export market. And they've had the benefit of being one of the latecomers to the nuclear energy field, so they've been able to uh, learn from others' mistakes and to uh, develop for their own industry the most modern, technologically advanced, safest uh, reactors. And uh, those are the ones that they would also like to export, although. If I was if I was on the receiving end, I'd kind of like to see it actually in operation for a few years in China right. before I before I bought it. And you know, Pakistan is buying one that hasn't been in operation is that right? yet. Um, yeah, we had a um, we had an interesting uh, day of meetings in China in June with uh, academics and uh, and some government officials, and it was about civil nuclear energy. And uh, the Chinese, most of them were, were very insistent that uh, they need nuclear energy mm-hmm. uh, for energy security, for, um, for their own economic development, you know, um, and, and uh, to replace or to supplement uh, the, the coal burning uh, right. uh, factories that are, are so highly uh, polluting. If they're going to meet their climate targets, you know, they're, they're, they probably they, you know, can't do it. Nuclear is probably nuclear probably a uh, uh, yeah. need for that. But but it was interesting. Not all the Chinese were on the same uh, board. They weren't all speaking from the same talking points. You know, we have this vision of China just collectively Everybody's saying the, the same, same thing. Right? They don't. They, they have <laughs> internal disagreements. And and some people were saying, well, you know, nuclear is not really a clean energy source because it takes a lot of it takes a lot of electricity to enrich uranium to produce the fuel sure. uh, for reactors and Reactors are a hundred-year-long project if you take into account the decommissioning. Right. And that end of the, the back end uh, uh, has a lot of, of, of potential um, environmental uh, concerns, in, you know, in addition to what do you do with the spent fuel. And so there are discussions in China. And an interesting um, uh, development in China is that while China um, used to really want nuclear energy um, for the um, for the energy, uh, energy security, right. and economic reasons. Right. Today's uh, younger Chinese are more concerned about health and environment. Sure. So they have the same kind of not in my backyard phenomenon that we have in the United States. Where are you going to locate new power plants in China? You, you know, they have to be near water. Right. But right. Um, the coasts and the river shores That's are, where are all pretty the highly are populated. Yeah. So yeah, it's a course. problem for them. So, so they—it's it, almost the same same issues that we see for nuclear power plants here in the United States as well. Siting and building a new nuclear yeah, power the, plant. Yeah, that's you know one of the uh, but one of the main differences with the United States is that China is a centrally planned economy. Uh, well, not centrally planned exactly, but one party uh, state. Right. So um, they can they can make decisions. They can overcome this. They um, and and also financing. You know, they, yeah. they can do state financing in a way the United States cannot. Right, right. And and that state financing also helps with their nuclear export Exactly. As they, well. can, they can subsidize You this, know, yeah. here in the United States, we have the Export-Import Bank, but it doesn't even have enough people on it to yeah. uh, So, to you know, um, nuclear exports are part of China's One Belt, One Road initiative. Right. You know, one of the many um, links in this uh, uh, chain of... Uh, 
of, of economic cooperation, they call it, uh, that they're trying to build. Yeah, interesting. Um, well, one, one final question before we, uh, we let you go here, Mark. Uh, so you're planning to retire at the end oh. of this year. <laughs> well, um, in a manner of speaking, yeah, I will, I will uh, stop my full-time work and, uh, and, and uh, continue as a senior advisor doing what I want to do, not necessarily what I have to Good. do. Good. I, I hope you're going to stay in this field and continue to, to add your wisdom and, and I'll thoughts. continue writing, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, looking back, in, is the world safer from, from nuclear weapons and nuclear disaster than it was in the 1970s, 1980s when you, uh, you first joined the State Department? I What's think, the outlook? Yes. I, I mean, I think if you look at it in a long-term perspective, um, you know, sort of 40,000 feet perspective, you'd have to say it is. Uh, we worried a lot more back then about uh, uh, n additional countries going nuclear. Mm -hmm. And uh, and a couple, you know, did. I mean, North Korea uh, did. Uh, Iran looked like it was, but it was, it hasn't. And I'm glad you made that point earlier. Yeah. It doesn't have nuclear weapons. It doesn't right. even have a, a known plan for making them. It has a nuclear hedging strategy. Right. And some other countries have nuclear hedging strategies if uh, if they need them. South Korea uh, being one. Sure. But the United States and and its um, you know, partners have been able to uh, use a variety of, of policy tools to stem the the proliferation spread. So it's still the nuclear club is limited to single digits. Right. It's nine, right. And, and that's a know, victory. And that's a victory, I think. Yeah. Um, and and I can't see any other countries on the horizon except with the you know possible you know of Iran and then mm -hmm. South Korea if if things go badly with North Korea there's not that many others that would probably you know go that route Saudi Arabia Saudi, is a possibility yeah. if Iran sure. um, uh, uh, does but it, Saudi Arabia won't be able to do it easily and then on in terms of other nuclear dangers and I think you have to look at nuclear dangers from a, a, a perspective of the nuclear weapons and nuclear right. um, uh, material getting into the wrong hands that terrorists could uh, build nuclear weapons, safety of nuclear uh, facilities. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of, of developments of trying to ensure nuclear safety, nuclear security, nuclear nonproliferation. Right. And a drawdown in the arsenals of the superpowers, far less a drawdown than it should be. But right. I, you know, at least the trend has been in the right direction. So I'm, I'm, I'm generally positive. Good. Uh, it's always nice to, to end on a positive note. Mark Fitzpatrick, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Andrew, for inviting me. Thank you, and this has been ASP's Flashpoint Podcast.